you would take your copy of God's word and open to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. The question is sometimes asked, will the great commission be ultimately successful? And the answer is a resounding yes. All whom God intended to save will be saved. And one of the reasons for that is the infallibly effectual high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. When God the Son prayed in advance for the full number of all who would ever believe on his name. And you're going to see that in the portion of scripture we'll be in today. We're going to be focusing in on verses 20 to 23, but I want to read all the way down to 26. John 17, beginning in verse 20, Jesus continues to pray. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. We now come to the third section of this prayer. In the first section, Jesus prayed for his imminent glorification to the ultimate glory of God the Father. In the second, he prayed specifically for the 11. And now he expands his prayer to include all who would ever believe in his name. And in so doing, he applies all that he prayed for the 11 to those who would come after them. The prayer for eternal preservation, the prayer for spiritual protection, the prayer for progressive sanctification, realities that aren't limited to the 11, but are equally applied to all of God's people throughout all of human history, as it were. And Jesus prayed this way with a purpose, that we would all be one, even as the Father and the Son are one that we would have union with the Godhead. And this with a view toward the fulfillment of the Great Commission, that the world may believe that the Father sent Jesus and that the world would know that God loves his people even as he loves his own beloved son. Two utterly astounding realities, union with God and the love of God. And so we're going to attempt to grasp these truths more deeply to equip and strengthen us for our earthly mission, that we would be faithful all the way to the end to the glory of God. And to do this, I'm going to give you two headings. The first is the particularity of Christ's intercession. The second is the purposes of Christ's intercession. And it'll be in that second heading that we'll get into union with God and the love of God. But first, if you're taking notes, jot this down. The particularity of Christ's intercession. The particularity of Christ's intercession. Verse 20, Jesus continues to pray to the Father, saying, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So Jesus expands the application of this prayer beyond the 11 and in so doing implies they will be effective in their mission. 
And notice the end of the verse. Jesus refers to their word. Until now, it's been the Father's word. And it will certainly remain the Father's word. But the apostles would go on to serve a unique role in the establishment of the church. Since as Ephesians 2.20 indicates, the church is that which is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In fact, it would be through devotion to the apostles' teaching, Acts 2.42, that the church would be built up to all maturity. And so the disciples, the eleven, would play an instrumental role in the realization of the Great Commission. And the message upon which the Great Commission entirely hinges is what? The gospel. The gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And Paul, for an example, could refer to it as his gospel. Romans 16, 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. The apostle Paul could refer to the gospel as his gospel, that which was entrusted to him, that which he was to bring to the Gentiles in proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the apostles would be entrusted with the message of salvation and were the instrument through which that message would reach the four corners of the earth. As there would be a a ripple effect throughout the centuries, all the way to the coming of the Lord, all the way to the end of the age. And the primary way that their ministry would have this ripple effect is through the revelation of the New Testament. As the Spirit would guide them into all the truth, John 16, 13, resulting in the completion of God's revelation in his word. And so since the New Testament codifies the message of the gospel, and since the very epistles that codify it can be attributed to the apostles. It is through their word that we come to believe. And Jesus, at this point here in verse 20, expands his prayer to include all who do. And as he does that, as I said, he reaches all the way back to everything he's already prayed Since verse 11, that the Father would keep us in the revelation of his name, verse 11. That the Father would keep us from the evil one, verse 15. That the Father would sanctify us in the truth, verse 17. Jesus incorporates us into the prayer he prayed for the 11. And yet, though Jesus expands the extent of this prayer it nevertheless remains limited. Jesus is praying for a particular people, namely for the 11 and those who believe through their word. So this prayer is limited to believers, to those who come to Christ by faith. And it's at this point that we need to define the world. Because as this prayer develops, it's the salvation of the world that's in view. Look at the end of verse 21, for example. So that the world may believe that you sent me. And the middle of verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me. And yet Jesus has already prayed back in verse 9 of John 17 saying that he is not praying on behalf of the world. Look at verse nine. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. And so we need to define the world here, especially if we're going to understand the verses that follow verse 20. 
One way to define the world is to see it as referring to absolutely everyone. What is often called all without exception. Defined this way, Jesus makes salvation possible for everyone, but effectual or actual for no one. Whereby it's entirely dependent on man to either receive or reject the message of the gospel such that the prayer of Jesus for the world is merely idealistic, wishful thinking. Now, there's a number of problems with seeing it that way. For one, it contradicts the rest of the teaching of John's gospel. John 6.44, we've referenced it many times. No one can come to me. That is, no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. That statement is Jesus declaring man's total inability to come to him apart from the Father drawing them. Or John 6, 65. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. The ability to come to Christ must be granted by God the Father. Man in himself does not have the ability or the capacity to respond to the gospel, to Christ. John 10, 14 and following, listen to this. Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Jesus knows his sheep even before they exist. And he lays down his life for them. That's the language of particularity. The conversation continues from there in verse 24 of John 10. Because it says the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So Jesus can speak to particular individuals, look them right in the eye, in their unbelief, and declare, you are not on my sheep. And that's why you don't believe. That's why you reject me because you do not belong to those whom the Father has given me from before the foundation of the world. And so to say that the world refers to absolutely everyone goes against the teaching of the gospel of John. For two, it obliterates the efficacy of this prayer. Since God the Son would be praying for an outcome that not only doesn't, but can't come to fruition. The fact is this, that the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it and the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it, Matthew seven thirteen and 14. 
And so defining the world as all without exception destroys the efficacy of the high priestly prayer. The prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ in John 17 would become merely an optimistic, hopeful request. One that is doomed to fail even before it's asked. And we could develop a plethora of other reasons why defining the world this way is inaccurate. But these alone are sufficient and they're tied to both the immediate and broader context of John's gospel. So the question is, how are we to define the world here? Well, another way to define the world is to see it as referring to a sovereignly elected group of people that are representative of the world. What is often called all without distinction. Defined this way, Jesus actually accomplishes salvation for a particular people, making it effectual and actual for them, whereby he dies for a people consisting of every tribe, tongue, and nation, such that the whole world is represented among the redeemed, rendering this prayer entirely efficacious. And this is the proper way to define the world. For one, It's completely consistent with the immediate context of this prayer. Jesus prays for those who will believe in him through the word of the 11. In so doing, he does not pray on behalf of the world, but instead prays for those whom the father has given them, given him rather, since it's them whom he gives eternal life to. And this group is representative of the world, every tribe, tongue, and nation. For two, it's consistent with the broader context of John's gospel, because in addition to what we've already read, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That the Father has given to the Son a gift, and in that gift are are individuals whom God has marked out for salvation, and, and all those in that gift will in fact come to Christ, and when they do, he will not cast them out. He will receive them unto himself. For three, it's consistent with the rest of scripture. Just as God shows us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him, Ephesians 1, 4. For four, and this is significant, it's consistent with the doctrine of the Trinity where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit work in total harmony and unison And that of the one divine will carrying out the plan of redemption and even the application of redemption to a particular people where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all working in one accord. The Father elects, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies to the the group of people God marked out from before the foundation of the world. And for five, it's consistent with a biblical soteriology. That is a a biblical understanding of the doctrines of salvation that takes into account the total inability of man, man's utter inability to respond to the grace of God in the gospel apart from the sovereign grace of the effectual call. And this is what you have to understand. If it wasn't by sovereign grace, no one would be saved there would never be every tribe, tongue, and nation represented at the the, the throne. Never. It'd be an utter impossibility. But because it's by God's sovereign work and sovereign grace, all that is expressed here in this prayer will in fact come to fruition. The Great Commission will in fact be successful. Now, at this point, what what happens sometimes is we begin to wrestle with loved ones that we care deeply for and don't know the Lord, or or maybe even made a a superficial profession of faith at one time, but there's really no evidence of a a connection to Christ, and and we're concerned that, that somehow... This doctrine is the thing that excludes them from from salvation. 
The reality, though, is that as we talk about defining the world this way, and as we talk about the, the plan of redemption and, and the sovereign grace of God, we are looking at the world through God's eyes. It's the divine perspective. From the human vantage point, we don't know who the elect are. And so our responsibility is to preach the gospel to everyone. And we only know who they are as they come to Christ by faith. But when someone hears the gospel and initially rejects it, that doesn't necessarily mean they aren't elect because the, the, the story ain't over until it's over. Until they give up their last breath, there is opportunity for them to lay hold of the Savior. And so we have a, a responsibility to bring the gospel to everyone and anyone. And as we do, we can do so knowing that our mission will in fact be successful as God effectually calls his people to himself through our ministry. And so Jesus expands his prayer beyond the 11 to include all those who would believe in him through their word. These two are bound up in the gift given by the Father to the Son, a gift that consists of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and is therefore representative of the world. There is a worldwide rescue mission underway, and it will be absolutely successful. Upholding the efficacy of our Lord's high priestly prayer, as well as the success and integrity of the Great Commission. That's the particularity of Christ's intercession. Now, second, the purposes of Christ's intercession. The purposes of Christ's intercession. And there are two. And the first is this, the purpose of union. The purpose of union. Look at verse 21. Jesus continues to pray that they may be that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now you'll notice that verse 21 begins with the word that. And there are two ways to take that. One is to see it as depicting the content of our Lord's prayer, namely that we would all be one that that indicates the content of what Jesus is praying and that content is our oneness, our union. The other is to see it as depicting the purpose for the expansion of all that Jesus has prayed to this point, that the purpose of broadening his prayer for the 11 to those who believe in him through their word is that all the redeemed, throughout the entire age, would be one. And as you might have guessed, I believe it's the latter, that the purpose of our incorporation into the prayer of verses 11 to 19 is that all believers would be one. And as you recall, our being one doesn't refer to a subjective unity. It refers to our union together, an objective spiritual reality. And our union together is analogous to the union between the Father and the Son. Jesus prays that they may all be one, here it is, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. There is union in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And our union is analogous to that union, where our union depicts a mutual interconnectedness, interdependence, and even a shared life. And yet, it's not just analogous to the union between the Father and the Son, it's also grounded in their union. Since Jesus prays, look at the middle of verse 21, that they also may be in us. So the ground, source, or even the cause of our union is our union to both the Father and the Son. 
And we could add the spirit. And Jesus amplifies the, the mechanism of this reality in verse 23. Look at it. When he prays, I in them and you in me. Our union with the Godhead takes place through our union with the God-man. Our union with Christ. It's sometimes said like this, God became joined to man in Jesus Christ so that we would be joined to God. God became joined to man. God the Son, in this case, became joined to man, added to himself the human nature so that we would be joined to God. And so through regeneration, we are joined to Christ and through him, we have union with God. Again, Jesus prays that they also may be in us. It's that preposition in that indicates union or incorporation. Paul, addressing the church of Thessalonica, says it like this to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.1, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Incorporation into God the Son and God the Father. And this too has a purpose. So there's a a dual purpose at work. Jesus expands the, the application of his prayer to include all believers that would come to faith through the ministry of the apostles, that they would all be one, that we would all be one for a purpose. And the purpose is tied to the great commission. End of verse 21. Here it is. So that the world may believe that you sent me. So as God's people come to Christ through the ministry of the 11, they will be brought into union with Christ and therefore into union with the Godhead. And through that union, they will also have union one to another. And the practical outworking of that will express itself in adherence to the revelation of God mediated through the Son and will result in all of God's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that at the end of the age, we can all with one voice to the glory of God declare mission complete. And so all of this revolves around the doctrine of union with Christ. And that doctrine receives so little attention. And it's not just glorious, it is incredibly strengthening. And so we're going to take some time just to shed some light on this glorious doctrine, the doctrine of union with Christ. And to do that, I want to show you how it fits into the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. And the order is bound up in what is often called the golden chain of redemption, a chain that is both unbreakable and indestructible. And though most of the events of salvation that began in eternity past and reach all the way forward to eternity future take place in a chronological fashion, there are some that are more logical because there are events in our salvation that take place in the very same moment. So the question is this, where does our union with Christ fit into the ordo salutis, the order of salvation? And to see this, you got to look at Romans 8, 29 and 30. So turn there just to kind of anchor this discussion a little bit. Where does our union with Christ fit into the order of salvation? Well, salvation, as I've said, began in eternity past. First with divine foreknowledge and then with predestination. And you'll see this in Romans 8 verse 29. 
which says, for those whom he, referring to God, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 29 refers to the plan of redemption, a plan that obviously began in eternity past through foreknowledge and predestination. And what was planned before the foundation of the world needs to become a reality in time. And it does through the application of redemption. And step one in the application of redemption is the effectual call. A divine summons administered by the Spirit through the message of the gospel that is infallibly efficacious in bringing one to life. And the effectual call produces regeneration, new birth, at which point the spirit permanently indwells us. And so look back at Romans 8.30 for a moment. It says there, and these whom he predestined, he also called, there's the effectual call. And that call, that summons to life, results in regeneration. And regeneration results in conversion, consisting of both repentance and faith and resulting in justification, where God imputes the righteousness of Christ to us on account of our faith in him through the instrument of faith. Again, look at Romans 8.30, and these whom he called, he also justified. And as you recall from last time, justification always results in progressive sanctification, whereby we become ever more like Christ, being ever more conformed into his image. And progressive sanctification reaches its goal in glorification when we're finally and totally made like Christ. Look again at Romans 8.31. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So there's a, a survey of the, the order of salvation. So the question is this, where does our union with Christ fit in? And here's the thing, union with Christ isn't merely another step or phase in the order salutis. Quoting biblical doctrine instead Union with Christ is the matrix out of which all other soteriological doctrines flow, unquote. Listen, every spiritual blessing we receive, every one of them, we receive on account of our union with Christ. Our union with Christ is the source of every spiritual blessing that we have. And to see this, turn to Ephesians 1 for a moment. There's a wonderful statement in Ephesians 1 and verse 3 that, that says exactly what we're saying here with respect to every spiritual blessing. In Ephesians 1 and verse 3, Paul declares, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That means that everything from divine foreknowledge all the way to glorification is ours on account of our union with Christ. Regeneration. Justification, progressive sanctification, final glorification, all of that comes to us on account of our union with Christ. And if you're tracking with me, then you're probably thinking that means that our union with Christ must predate the time of our salvation, that our union with him must have began in eternity past. And it did. Look at verse four. Just as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world. Listen, there's a sense in which we had union with Christ long before his incarnation and long before we even existed. God elected us unto salvation in Christ, in union with Christ before the foundation of the world. And so the great theologian John Murray writes that our union with Christ is, quote, the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. The central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Jesus is our life. He is our representative. He is our substitute. We have been crucified with him, Galatians 2.20. We have died with him, Romans 6.8. We have been buried with him, Romans 6.3. We have been raised with him, Romans 6.4. We have been seated with him in the heavenlies, Ephesians 2.5 and 6. He is our sanctification. He is our justification. He is our glorification. He is our everything. And so we don't merely love him. Follow him, worship him, and pray to him. Though we certainly relish these things, but we are in such vital union with him that we share a common life with him. In him was life, John 1 says. And that life is now in us. Christ is in us. He lives in us. And through our union with him, we have this shared life with him, even to the extent, as you'll see in a moment, that the father loves us with the same love with which he loves his beloved son. And you might be thinking, I need a picture here to appreciate the nature of this union with Christ. Well, what about a vine and branches? In John 15, Jesus said, I am the true vine. And then declared, we are the branches. Branches must be connected to the vine to bear fruit. There's a a vital union between the branch and the vine where the life of the vine reaches the branch to bear fruit by virtue of being connected to the vine. And it's out of this union that we come together with one purpose, adhering to God's revelation, mediated through his son and accomplished the Great Commission. As we participate in the application of redemption through the proclamation of the gospel and see all of the elect of God be reconciled to him through his son. I mean, this is a mission you want to be a part of. It's a a mission that cannot fail. It's a mission that is guaranteed to succeed because the glory and faithfulness of God are riding on it. That's the first purpose of Christ's intercession, the purpose of union. And now the second, the purpose of love. The purpose of love. Look at verse 22. Jesus continues to pray. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are. Now, this is a challenging statement. What glory is Jesus referring to? Is he referring to the glory of verse five? That glory which he had with the father before the world was? Not likely, He was still anticipating being restored to that glory through his death, resurrection, and exaltation. And in verse 24, even expresses his desire for them to see that glory, a a future reality. And so what does glory refer to? Well, it's difficult, but I think we get a clue back in verse 11. Where Jesus prays, look at it. Holy Father... Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. And even thinking of this glory that the Lord has given to the disciples, 
Verse six is helpful because it says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. And even the purpose of them being kept in the father's name in verse 11 is that they may be one even as we are, which is consistent with what he's saying here. The glory which you have given me, verse 22, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. And to be kept in the Father's name is to be kept in the revelation of him. And so it would seem that the, the glory that Jesus is referring to here is the glory that is bound up in his revealing the Father to the disciples and, and entrusting that revelation to them, to be the ones that would take that revelation and, and carry it on, declaring it to the to the to the unbelieving world whereby the elect of God would come in and the ministry of the commission would continue. And so this statement that Jesus has given to the disciples, to the 11, and to us by extension, glory, seems to point to his revelatory mission of making the father known whereby having done so he sets the entire great commission in motion and then he begins to further unpack this union language verse 23 I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity which is literally perfected into one so that the world may know that you sent me. So again, our union together in Christ is critical to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. It's through being perfected into one as we faithfully preserve the implications of that oneness that we will be effective in the cause of Christ to the extent that many will come to know that God the Son in Jesus Christ is the supreme revelation of God and will be reconciled to him. And then this statement, end of verse 23, and love them even as you have loved me. I mean, even as you think about that and the, the definition of the world, the unbelieving world is never gonna comprehend this. The world that dies without Christ and spends eternity in hell is not going to comprehend this love, ever. But if the world consists of all those whom God has marked out for salvation, the Great Commission will be successful, and the world, every tribe, tongue, and nation represented at the throne of Christ through his glorious act of redemption will comprehend this love that God loves his people with the same love with which he loves the son. And that's a staggering reality. Do you comprehend that? Do you comprehend the reality that in Christ, God loves you with the same love with which he loves his son? A love that is perfect, loyal, faithful, enduring, never-ending, everlasting. It makes me think of Ephesians chapter three and the way the apostle Paul prayed for those in Ephesus. Ephesians 3, 14 and following, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. 
to comprehend the love of God toward us in Christ is massive for the Christian life. And we're going to be able to expound more on this next time as this theme of love comes up again in verse 26. But note this, mark this. God loves his children with the same love with which he loves his own son. And as we are brought into Christ, where our union, which in one sense predated the incarnation of Christ and our own existence and is actualized through regeneration and repentant faith, we come to begin at minimum to comprehend this love, knowing that there will be a, a fuller comprehension and appreciation for this love when, when all is in and the age ends and we are in the very presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And at that time, all the redeemed made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation will be able to rejoice in the comprehension of this love where the full experience of God's love for us will be fully realized and we'll be in his presence to enjoy him for all of eternity. And so what's significant beyond the hopefully worshipful meditations that this has brought to your mind and heart is that we have union in Christ. We are joined one to another. There is a, a vital union that we have in Christ where there's an interconnectedness and an interdependence, a, a shared life. And we, we experience that life and even exercise that life within the body of Christ. And as we come together as the body of Christ and are faithful to preserve the, the union that we have, the, the oneness that we have that would express itself in practical unity and come together in a unified purpose to bring the gospel to the, to the world, we are going to be faithful and successful in fulfilling our part in the Great Commission. As we see God work to bring his people to himself through the preaching of the gospel. And given that we're here and that we're all together, what, a, what an opportunity for the gospel to be preached. Because no doubt, even now, there are some here who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ and are still either trying to save themselves or are just living for their own fleeting daily joy and yet right now in this moment, a glorious, powerful, majestic Savior is being held out to you. One who has fulfilled all righteousness, no sin in him, and then went to the cross and, and suffered under the wrath of God for the sin of all who would ever believe on his name, died, rose from the grave, ascended to the right hand of God, and is awaiting that time when he will come again. And you have an opportunity right now to acknowledge before God your sin and unrighteousness, to confess his holiness, to even recognize that he would be just to bring eternal judgment upon you, to confess Jesus as Lord, to look to his finished work, to, to believe into him and be saved saved from the wrath to come, given eternal life, given union with Christ joined to the union that we have here as the body of Christ, and then to throw in your lot in the Great Commission, a, a rescue mission that is guaranteed to succeed as the gospel goes to the four corners of the earth and God's people are, are reconciled to him through his son. I can't think of any better reason to be alive or any better purpose to be in pursuit of. And so if you're here and you have not yet believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, may this be the day 
that you would look to him and be reconciled to your creator through him, calling upon his name and receiving every spiritual blessing in him. Wonderful and amazing realities that should allow us and even cause us to with one accord declare, oh, what a savior. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we give you honor, glory, and praise. The truth of this portion of scripture assaults our pride. We realize that We can't save ourselves, that we are not in control of our own destiny, that you are the sovereign, glorious, majestic one, worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. And Father, we are so thankful for the revelation of yourself in your word, the revelation of the prayer that Jesus prayed on the night that he was betrayed that we would be able to dig into it, seeking to get into it and it into us, that we would be changed as we see his glory and delight in the glory that we see and are strengthened in the inner man to live the life you've called us to live. And so, Father, help us to do that. Help us as a church to be of one purpose, to be of one mind, to have our hand of the plow, seeking your glory, seeking to be faithful in the mission that you've given to the church. And may you be honored in all that we do. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.